This episode of The Way Home Podcast is brought to you by the 2017 ERLC National Conference, August 24th through 26th in Nashville, Tennessee. This year's theme is Christ-Centered Parenting in a Complex World. You go to ERLC.com slash events for more information. Have you ever stopped to think about what that little gadget in your pocket is doing to you? If you're like me, your iPhone is ever-present. Well, today we're joined by my friend, Tony Ranke, who has thought deeply about what technology is doing to our soul and to our minds, and in a way that's very thoughtful, uh, not anti-technology, not pro-technology, but thinking about it from a Christian perspective. Tony Ranke is the senior writer for Desiring God. He's the author of many books, and his latest is 12 Ways Your iPhone is Changing You. Uh, He also hosts the Ask Pastor John podcast with John Piper, and he lives uh, in the Twin Cities. Tony and I will talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly of our iPhones. We'll discuss a theology of technology, and we'll think about social media, texting, and other forms of communication and how they change the way we see each other. Tony Ranke will be a guest at the upcoming ERLC National Conference in August, which you can still sign up for, by the way, using the code WAYHOME and get a 20% discount. Tony's going to give us a preview of his talk at the conference. Well, I'm glad to have my good friend Tony Ranke here uh, on the podcast. Tony, thanks for joining me, man. Dan, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Man, there's so much we could talk about, but obviously I wanted to have you on to talk about your book that I think has really tapped into um, a kind of cultural moment in terms of technology and where we are, uh, 12 Ways Your iPhone is Changing You. I read this book. I came into it kind of like knowing I need to read this book because I need to think about my iPhone usage. My wife's telling me I need to read this book because of my (laughs) iPhone usage. And one of the things I came away with that I really loved, and I know I was texting you throughout it because I was just like, man, this is great stuff. One of the things I really appreciate is you really deliver on a theology of technology. And I think that's one area that I we don't think about enough. We're either sort of immersed in it and not thinking about the damage that technology can do, or we're sort of on the other end where we're sort of Luddites where we just automatically pivot to everything's bad. Was that important for you to start out with, here's what technology is? Yeah, huge. I mean, this is a huge question. My question is, where does technology come from, and how does it relate to God? Those are my two big questions that really are under this book. The 12 Ways Your Phone is Changing You is really my attempt to sort of validate my theology of technology at a popular mm-hmm. level. And so, um, you know, I start the book with a little introduction to how I think of theology and technology. But, you know, even now, I'm, I'm stepping back, and I'm starting to develop a, a much larger book that will actually go into um, these mm-hmm. things in, in more detail. But the smartphone was, it, it seemed like it was a good platform, a good area to talk about uh, how I think of God's relationship to technology and the Christian's relationship to technology as well, and to develop that in a way that hopefully made sense to to, to average Christians, and um, that was built on deeper foundations that went, uh, you know, down to a firm base on like how do we how do we think of technology because it's a smartphone today, but it's going to be artificial intelligence, automation, self driving mm-hmm. cars, that stuff. It's all coming down the pike, and so 
we really have to think through these questions and there's not a lot of help on them at the practical level. There's some good the theoretical, philosophical books over the years, but really diving into uh, what is my relationship as a follower of Christ to technological innovation is something that I felt was an area that was underserved. And so that's kind of where I'm stepping in. You make the case that technology is not new. I think when we think of technology, we think of digital, we think of sleek, we think of computers, and you make the case that actually technology has been with us really since the beginning of time in many ways, right? Absolutely. Yeah, I think some. this is where the breakdown for some philosophers comes, is there's a distinction that they make between tools and technology, between mm -hmm. sort of tradecraft versus um, digital media today. And I, I don't see a, a hard distinction there. It would take quite a bit of time to develop why I don't see a huge distinction there. But I think if you trace through the history of, of innovation, I think you do see a lot of commonalities, one of them being that um, uh, a Technology like a smartphone is not simply a tool. It does more than just um, help us to write emails. It's 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 a space where we connect with other people. It's a space where we find validation. It's a space where our longings and our desires um, express themselves in a way that's not typical of a tool like a, a garden hoe would be, you know. But if you mm -hmm. go back in time and you look at um, – if you look at the pre-modern period, I think what you see is that people did not just simply think of their metalworking tools as just simply raw tools, but that they invested those things with a mythic quality. Um, we would call it, you know, a paganism, an idolatrous paganism. But there was something more than just having a metal tool that you could use to plant seeds. There was more than that. And so I think the tool and technology distinction is one I'm not comfortable making. I do think that there's more of a trajectory that traces itself out from Genesis and to our time. Um, and again, it goes back to my understanding of how technology and, and creation interact and how God is the one who gave us these blessings. Yeah, because, I mean, one of the things I think is important for us as pastors or writers or teachers to teach people that you know there are perils of technology which which you talk about and we'll talk about but technology in many ways is just simply the creative act of of stewarding what god the creator has given us as humans right we we create god gives us essentially the raw materials and we create because we're made in the image of the of the creator right that's exactly right. If you go back to Genesis, and a lot of this is biblical theology. I'm trying to push biblical theology and looking at technology through the lens of Genesis uh, to Revelation. And when I go into Genesis and you see um, Adam and Eve, and then you see Cain and Abel, uh, you see Abel is, you know, t typologically the believer. Cain is the typological uh, rebellious unbeliever, the one who's going to be cast out. Uh, but if you look at the, the storyline of who God's going to invest creative uh, innovation with, it's going to be the lineage of Cain. It's going to be the, the rebellious, quote-unquote, non-Christian non uh, lineage. And so I think what we see even from the beginning in Genesis is that God is going to give his gifts of innovation to non-Christians, to non-believers, more so than he has his own children, which is amazing. Yeah, but I you mean, look at that text. You, but you, but you realize that already in the plan of God, 
the arc was already in play. The global flood was already in play. And so technology was going to bring about the arc, mm-hmm. um, but it was going to come through Cain's lineage. And I think there's a lot of lessons there about how God is going to bless the church with technology through the hands of non-Christians. We are then given tools to use for edifying purposes. But obviously, that's not to baptize every technology. It doesn't mean that every mm-hmm. technology is good and profitable. It doesn't mean every use of technology is good and profitable, but it does mean that God is the one who superintends all of that innovation. Yeah, I mean, you think of you think of the book. The you know we take for granted. You know, books are like you know if you read paper books, that's considered like a classic mm-hmm. or kind of old school thing to do. But the book at one time was the newest, latest technology, and and I still argue, and I actually tell this to my kids, and they think I'm I'm crazy, but I still think the book is one of the most innovative pieces of technology ever invented. I mean, it's, but you make, you talk about how the book and the printing press changed things uh, and had good and bad ramifications when it sort of was thrust into the world. Yeah, absolutely. I just talked to a Reformation scholar this morning who talked about uh, Gutenberg and and he was he was explaining to me just how that revolutionized the world. It essentially brought theology into the hands of the populace uh, instead of uh, relegating it to handwritten Latin manuscripts that were only available in the, the educational institutions. So it, the the printing press opens up the door to get the message out and to spread the, 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 the gospel far and wide to print the Bible in the common vernacular of your people and to spread it all over the place. Of course, it also means Joel Osteen is going to be the number one bestseller, you know? Right. It also means that you're going to have, the, there's unintended consequences mm-hmm. for that, but yeah, the, the technology is a good, good and blessed thing, but it also comes with drawbacks. You're right. Um, you challenge Christians in this book. Like I felt challenged, but I didn't feel shamed for my use of technology. And, and I mm. think I think you were very vulnerable in terms of talking about your own habits and kind of ask us to ask questions in here. I found that very refreshing. Was that kind of your intent uh, all along going in? I don't know if I had an intent going in. I know it was going to change me personally, but I think when I came to the end, I you know, I came to realize and I was really asking myself the question like, okay, am I done with the smartphone? Is it time for me to go back to a dumb phone? That was the question that was pressing at the end of this book project. And I decided to stay with a smartphone. But I was, there's this tension that we are going to face as Christians in this world when it comes to technological advance. And that is number one, we can't just go wholesale and plunge into technological innovation uncritically. The second thing is, I think we can't just simply dismiss all technology either. So we're living in this, in the middle, in the gray middle of knowing what's good for me, what's good for my family, what's um, not healthy for me and for my family. And so the book really became this sort of path of me walking through this gray area for myself and trying to think, how do I use social media for uh, gospel spread? How do I use it for my career, for my vocation? And how do I put certain parameters and digital detoxes and Sabbaths and things like that in place so that I'm not uh, totally swept away into this this world of social media. And so, I mean, for me, it was a very personal um, journey. I didn't know where I was going to end in the end. My wife did go off social media about a year and a half ago, and she's been off social media completely in that time. But different readers are going to come with different takeaways. And I want readers to really think through, like, what has God called me to do? And then how does technology help me do that? And so it's a very personal journey, I think, for every reader. And I certainly felt that myself. Uh, you, you spend quite a bit of time talking about what social media and sort of 
instantaneous communication are doing to the way we talk to each other, both for good and for ill. And it really made me think, I don't know that we fully reckoned with social media in terms of the fact that it's given almost, you know, anybody with a profile has a platform. So you're kind of maintaining a public image all the time and in a way that I don't think we've seen in history. And yet there's great uses of social media. I mean, I probably know Tony Ranke because I followed you on Twitter way back in the day, or I read your article on Desiring God. So can you talk about that? Yeah. Again, it goes back to personal calling. So I feel, you know, my calling is to write and my calling is to um, host and edit podcasts. And that's what God has called me to do. And so social media is a very uh, helpful uh, way to do what I need to do. On the flip side, you know, as a dad, uh, as a husband, social media can get in the way of those callings. And I think, especially for my wife, I think what she found is that social media was uh, constantly getting in the way of the things that she needed to do to serve her family really well. And so she decided to step back from social media. I think I think if you look at the pattern of social media in my own life, I've definitely stepped back. I'm a lot less um, engaged and a lot less online than I was uh, in, in years past. But again, I think it goes back to those vocations, like what has God called me to do? And that's what I can't answer for each individual uh, reader of my book, but I'm encouraging them to ask this question because for some, they're going to say, hey, my life is not benefiting from uh, all this time in social media. What I found is is really interesting is that the people who tend to be really disciplined with social media are uh, pre-med students and pre-law students. People who ha- have a goal of going into medicine or going into law, they don't have time for social media. And when I started to see that, I started to realize like, you know, personal calling and big goal setting is one of the things that's going to help you uh, determine how much social media is too much. And uh, it's just interesting in those two categories, you're seeing people with these huge goals, which can take a, many years to achieve. And that in and of itself diminishes social media in its frivolous forms. I want to talk a little bit more about that because um, I've really started thinking the last you know year or so that those of us who are on social media all the time, like I, I really like Twitter and I like doing, cause I'm, I feel like I can catch up with the news. I can mm-hmm. follow people I like. I find out about good content and good things happening. Uh, but it's also very, uh, it can be very enslaving in a way that is, is bad for social relationships, which, which I want to talk about a little bit later. But I've also started to realize that you can get, we can get lulled to, into a sense of thinking that the whole world's on Twitter. Twitter is the whole world, right? <laughs> yeah. And in reality, you know, what is it, 10% of the world's on Twitter or something? I mean, if you oh, go- less than that, yeah. Maybe less than that, yeah. I mean, and for instance, if I go to my church here in, in suburban Nashville, probably 5% of the, and that's being generous, is on Twitter. So the last eight controversies, they don't know <laughs> about, they haven't worried about, they haven't sweat. And so there's a kind of dynamic there where we have to be careful that we think this is the this is the whole world, right? Yeah, I mean, this is the beauty of the local church. Um, when we go to our social media feeds, oftentimes who we're following are people like us or people who think like us or people who are in the same socioeconomic class as us. Uh, when we go to lo- our local church on Sundays, we're surrounded by the elderly, the older believers in the faith. We're surrounded by people who are of different races and of different socioeconomic classes than us. People who think differently than we do. We're surrounded by teenagers. We're surrounded by those who are cognitively and physically disabled. We're surrounded by children. We're surrounded by all of the people, the whole breadth of different people that we don't see in our social media feeds because our social media feeds really are 
too like us, too similar to us. And so God has designed the local church for us to go and to meet with people who are different than we are. And uh, we'll be sharpened and shapened by those differences, by the, the tensions that we feel. Those tensions are what sharpen us. And those are the tensions that we oftentimes don't feel online because we've isolated ourselves into a group of, of friends who are so like-minded that we never get mm-hmm. pushed back on. We never get challenged. And so the local church plays a hugely important role in this. Yeah. And yet, when we talk about technology, some of the perils of that, the danger is obviously that we're, we don't know how to socially interact. We're all in a room and we're all looking on our phones and don't know how to like be present. But in the same time, you know, this instantaneous communication is good. I, I think, and you talked about this, you know, the idea of texting, you know, texting mm-hmm. can get out of hand, but texting is actually a great way to communicate, say with your kids or with yep. people from out of town in a way that you can't spend 30 minutes on a phone call or or you can't invest in time. You, it seems like th- that's some of the redemptive aspects of instantaneous communication. Yeah, it sure is. You know, isolation is one of the issues that we face. It's a good thing. It's good to be isolated. It's good to have personal time, devotional time, things like that. It's also the problem that a lot of the technologies that we seek after, uh, because they provide so much isolation, they also tend to seclude us. And we tend to uh, get comfortable in seclusion. We want our machines to buffer and broker our relationships in a way that's unhealthy. But this idea that technology isolates us is really part of the long history of technology that is separating us from one another. So if you look at the history of music, you know, maybe uh, at one point in time, you went to a live orchestra on Saturday night to hear music, and then you got a transistor radio in the middle of your home, and then you had a car radio, and then you had a boom box, and then you had a Walkman with a cassette tape, uh, you know, on your on your <laughs> waist. I had one of those. <laughs> it's so clunky. And then maybe a, maybe a portable CD player that was just as clunky. And then you, we eventually had iPods, and then we had iPod nanos, like these tiny things that we could clip to our sleeve. And so music moved from the sort of corporate gathering for an orchestra down to what color iPod do you prefer? You know, the same thing happens with cinema. You used to go to a movie theater to see a movie and then VCRs and TVs led to the, you know, LED TVs in every bedroom. The same thing happened with news and gossip. You used to have to go to the pub to get, you know, the local uh, news and gossip from around the kingdom. And now that eventually led to newspapers, which you could shield your eyes with. And then that led to what we know of as social media. Uh, There's, there's just an ongoing economic drive behind it all, uh, you know, as you break technology down uh, into a device for every person, you know, an iPod and iPhone and whatever color you want and whatever size you want and a case that's uniquely your own, you tailor technology to each consumer as the targeted object of, of marketing. And so each consumer becomes a very profitable commodity. So the iPhone is really, um, it's just the most powerful technology of human isolation ever invented. It's the culmination of all these technologies, but it really does, it, uh, it it isolates us, which is what we want, but that's also a drawback, and that's true of so many technologies throughout the years. What is the biggest misconception we have about our iPhones? Oh, that's a great question. Hmm. Wow, I've never been asked that. That's really hard. Um, the biggest misconception of our smartphone is probably that the iPhone itself is this innovative device when in fact what it is is a compilation of consumer electronics mm. brought together brilliantly by Steve Jobs. Mm. That's that's really good. Yeah, it, it really is everything in our pocket. Like I just think about, you know, growing up, and now I sound like an old guy, but it's, if you're going on a road trip, you need to have an atlas, 
right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you probably wanted to have an audiobook or something with you that you checked out from the library. So that's another good. Yep. You know, you might have had a, a, a car phone. Like my dad had one of those early, like <laughs> huge Uniden brick car phones that cost yep. a lot of money. Or maybe you had a CB or something like that. You had to have to have all these different goods. And now you have more than that uh, in your pocket. <laughs> it's just really yeah, amazing. I mean, you used, to, you used to have a book of con- all your contacts. You used to have a book for your contacts. You used to, if you worked in a business, you would you would have to have your fax machine number on your business card. You had to have that uh, to send documents. Uh, there's a video online that ta- that it's just it's a. It's a, it's a video that just shows a desk of an average worker in 1980, and then you just start to see all the things disappear off the off the desk and then become apps on the mm. computer, and then eventually the apps become uh, part of the phone. And so it is just a compilation of all of the data sharing and communications advances. I mean, I, I remember watching the keynote when Steve Jobs, you know, announced the iPhone, and it was an iPod, a, you know, a revolutionary iPod that mm-hmm. wouldn't have a flywheel, but you'd actually be able to touch the screen. And it was a phone, and it was a mobile web browser. And that was just, I mean, everybody thought that was, you know, brilliant. And it wasn't just a mobile web browser. It was like it preserved the look of the web. It wasn't just this black and white BlackBerry thing. And so even from the beginning, it really was just a compilation of all the all the technologies. And that's really what it is today. It's just uh, taking all of the things that we need in our lives of data communication and bringing it into one device. So yes, it's revolutionary. Yes, it's the most innovative gadget in the history of mankind, according to Time Magazine. But it really is just a compilation of things that were already in existence that are now just easier to access now. Well, if you're a parent like me, you know that your kids are asking pretty difficult questions, questions about race, questions about gender, questions about sexuality. As parents, how do we answer those questions? Well, the ERLC is hosting a conference this August on Christ-centered parenting in a complex world. We're going to have a variety of voices and experts to speak, Russell Moore, Sally Lloyd-Jones, Jim Daly, Jen Wilkin, Crawford Loritz, Phil Vischer. Nancy Guthrie, Danny Aiken, Lauren Chandler, Eric Mason, and many more. So we invite you to come join us in Nashville on August 24th to 26th. And if you use a coupon code, WAYHOME, you'll get a 20% discount. So go to ERLC.com events and get signed up for the 2017 ERLC National Conference, Christ-Centered Parenting in a Complex World. something you said earlier and something you say in the book that really made me think was uh, about isolation and the fact that I forget how you say it, but we are isolated, but want to be on our phones with mm-hmm. our online community forsaking the actual community around us. So I, I didn't say that exactly how you said, but that that's an interesting dynamic uh, at play, right? Yeah. It struck me that when we're, when I get into an elevator and there's three other people on the elevator, the first thing I do is grab for my phone. Because that's awkward, right? It's like yeah. a security blanket. 
Um, when I'm at home alone, there's nobody else here, and I'm just vegging, I want to go on social media and be surrounded by people. And so as I was writing the book, I, came, I, I realized that there's this weird social phenomenon happening, and that is when we're out and around people, we want to be alone. And when we're at home alone, we want to be surrounded by people. And so we want to – it's this constant tension. I don't – it's just a mystery to me why that's so true of us. But, like, again, it goes back to this concept that I think we, we want to buffer and broker all of of our relationships through a machine mm. and we feel more comfortable and this is Andy Warhol I mean the the artist Andy Warhol he used to go to, around on the streets with a Polaroid camera and a voice recorder and that's kind of how he that's the only way he could interact with the public it all had to be mediated through a machine and essentially the smartphone is what we do it's it's more socially respectable to use an iPhone to do this rather than walking around with a polaroid and just taking <laughs> snapshots of <laughs> random people but you know like there's something about like we we you know we're talking through a machine right now mm-hmm. And there's something that really changes in an interview when you have to keep eye contact. And when you don't have to keep that eye contact, there's some level, at least for me as an introvert, of, of comfort. Yeah, I like I like the fact that we can't see each other, you know? Right. I like it's there's some comfort to that. We we've grown to just look to machines to be the buffer and broker of our relationships. We're more comfortable that way. Um there that's got a good and bad side to it. Um, obviously, when it comes to, again, the local church and you're going to meet face-to-face and you're going to talk face-to-face, there's a level of discomfort. There's a level of self-disclosure that can't be faked. There's no Valencia filter for you at, at your local church. It's, it's you. It's all of you. Mm-hmm. You cannot uh, you cannot just rest on your profile picture of your face. You, your whole body is there. If, you're, <laughs> you know, if you struggle with self-image, you're going to struggle with that at local church because your friends there are going to see all of you. That's it's who you are. You can't fake yourself there. And so there's just a level of uh, level of honesty and realism that is called for in those relationships that make, makes us nervous because we can't buffer and broker our relationships um, so easily within the local church. So I think it gets at a lot of deeper things, but um, I, I think that's fundamentally the, the issue. Which makes me want to pivot to how pastors and church leaders should be thinking about this. Uh, if, if you struggle with self-image, as many people do, Social media allows us to hide behind a carefully curated and and airbrushed image. So when we go to church, we're a little more ashamed because people have to reckon with all of us. Mm -hmm. So the church, obviously, then needs to be the place that where I accept you for who you really are, not for who your profile photo says you are, right? Exactly. Exactly. We, we've got to step out from behind the, the platforms that we've built online and whatever uh, self-edited version of ourselves we put online for people to see, we've got to step out um, and, and be real, honest, face-to-face with our brothers and sisters in Christ, which obviously that's, that's always been hard. That's been hard before um, social media came around, but we just have to work extra hard to be real with one another. And um, there's something about the embodied space of the local church where there is, when that's when the local church is truly functioning, there's a joy, there's a happiness that happens that cannot be faked, cannot be replicated online. And no matter how many uh, digital conversations you have with Christians, there's an embodied joy that, 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 that is present when the people of God have gathered um, to hear the gospel preached and to sing and to uh, voice their worship to God in heart harmony together. It's just a, it's, it's a beautiful thing. Mm. And um, I want to talk further about that in the sense of we live in a very digitally saturated world. So, you know, the tendency for us 
church leaders is to think we have to contextualize and give people the technology that they're used to. But I wonder if there's a if actually we need to create, in a sense, more analog spaces where people who are sort of uh, burned out by the digital world or revolution can come and just kind of breathe uh, in experiences that are embodied experiences. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that's huge. I think men's gatherings, women, women's gatherings, teen gatherings, where you can go to a campsite and you can spend two, three days or even up to a week and, you know, have a policy where nobody can check their phones except for, you know, certain periods of time to check in with family or whatever. I th- those, those types of experiences are really, really important. And the people that I'm getting the most emails from are the people who lead those kind of outdoor retreat centers saying, hey, we're incorporating your book into our curriculum because this is what we do. We take people, mm-hmm. we make sure that their phone is away eight hours a day and the, the, we do devotions and we, we sort of help them detox and we help them sort of build new habits. Habits. And so I think you're onto something in the sense that in the next generation, I think we're going to have to learn to find uh, space and just make space to be with other Christians. And um, a lot for a lot of us, it's, it's going to be uh, in a very intentional space where we don't have our phone ex- accessible at all. Some some Christians can self-discipline. They'll leave their phone in the car during church or they'll leave it in their pocket Um that means you know finding a different way to read your Bible than digitally. But I think there's ways to do it. But it comes back to I think the church is going to have to challenge itself to be to be offline in uh, small group settings and in retreat settings that will be helpful. One more question: you you're going to be a featured speaker at our ERLC National Conference coming up here in August. And one of the persistent questions you probably get and we get are from parents or youth pastors or student pastors, just really wrestling with how to walk their kids through technology. And I'm not going to ask you specifically, when should your kid have an iPhone? Because that's a kind of a personal decision, I feel like, for each family and based on Mm -hmm. maturity, which I think you would agree with. But what are some things that parents really need to be thinking about uh, as they uh, proactively walk their kids uh, through life in this sort of uh, digital age? Yeah, I'm really looking forward to the conference, and I, I think there I'm going to have a little bit of time to kind of uh, help parents. I'll, I'll help walk parents through sort of like the five-year-old, six-year-old using a tablet you know, for educational purposes in the home to graduating them to a smartphone and kind of what the transition looks like and what you're trying to instill in them at the very practical level. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to the conference, uh, and I've got some thoughts there. But in general, I think what the social media smartphone age has done is it has brought every desire that you possibly have in your heart to a high-def screen right in front of you, whether that's materialism, whether that's pornography, whether that's self-affirmation, whether that's popularity, whatever it is that drives your heart is now uh, presented to you in front of your eyes. It's essentially the desires of your heart are what pixelate your phone. The desires that you have inside of your heart are what you see on your screen. So it's not as though we're talking about this distant, separate thing, this appendage, um, it is actually, uh, this is a mirror into our deepest longings and desires. And so I think what the digital age is doing is it's showing us that if you do not have um, a settled affection for Jesus Christ and his beauty, you cannot resist the desires of your heart and the ease with which you'll find sin 
in social media and through your phone. And so I think what it's doing for all of us, this is for me, this is for all parents, this is for teenagers, we've got to wrestle with this idea of how do we treasure God more than pornography? How do we treasure God more than the materialism, which is so easy and available on our, on our screens? How do we treasure God more than these things? Now, that seems like a very theoretical question, but I think there's, there's things that we can do as parents even now, and that is we can articulate to our kids our love for for Jesus Christ, um, the fact that we treasure him above all things. Uh, for, for a lot of kids, they'll never hear their parents say that. They'll never hear their, their parents articulate their affection for Jesus Christ. It will be assumed. Maybe you'll see mom and dad with their hands up in worship on Sunday morning. But what we've got to do is give our kids the language of affection, because this really is going to be a fight for their souls, for their loves, just as we feel this, you know, we feel this tension with our own phones. And so passing on to the next generation, this desire for Jesus Christ and praying for our kids that they would have their eyes open to see just how beautiful he is. This is going to be the battle of the age is with all of the things that you can find on your phone. And it's so accessible, so easy to find what truly, what desires truly guide you. And I think for parents, we have to start thinking about how to do that in a more um, articulate and a more substantial way than we have in the past. Mm, That's really good. Tony, thank you so much for joining me. And and again, we're really excited about you coming and speaking on this very important critical issue and thankful for just your work and kind of, as you call yourself, a sort of theological journalist, really mining some of the best thinkers, uh, both in the church and outside the church, to really deliver some really, I think, important content for us. And so I want to encourage people to go out and get uh, 12 Ways Your iPhone is Changing You. It's a really good read. I read it. I encourage people to read it. So thank you, Tony, for, for joining me. I appreciate it. I appreciate that, Dan. I look forward to seeing you at the conference. Thank you for listening to The Way Home Podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please let us know by writing a review on iTunes. You can catch previous episodes on danieldarling.com. The Way Home is produced by Gary Lancaster, assisted by David Clausen, and scheduling by Marie Delph. The Way Home is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention.